Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. It's always awesome to sing praises to our God. And I think I'll follow that song up this morning with a poem. Anybody in the mood for a poem? The name of this poem is called The Perfect Church. I think that I shall never see a church that, that's all it ought to be. A church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty pews whose pastor never has the blues. A church whose deacons always deek, that's a new word, and none is proud and all are meek. Where gossips never pedalize or make complaints or criticize where all are always sweet and kind and all to others' faults are blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still we'll work and pray and plan to make our church the best we can. The perfect church. And to this poem, I believe Paul the Apostle would give a hearty amen. As Paul himself has been charged by Jesus Christ to produce these kinds of ideal churches in the world. That's Paul's goal. That's what Paul lives for. To produce and to develop bodies of believers that reflect the good and the right and the perfect will of God. That's what he said last week in verse 2. And it is God's will that the people of God together foster a peaceful and a gracious environment where everyone feels safe and at home. And it was with this goal in mind that Paul instructed the church in Rome on last week to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by having their minds renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, by having their minds Change. It's interesting when you read those verses in the context in which Paul is speaking. Paul is talking about the church. He's instructing each individual to not be conformed to the world. Paul knows that unless the members of any congregation submit to the mind-transforming power of the Holy Spirit, their church would be marked by the same dog-eat-dog -dog attitude that exists in the world. And giving those who are outside the church a poor representation of what heaven is really like. While we cannot know for certain the specifics of what's going on in the church at Rome, based on Paul's admonitions here, we can safely conclude that something is out of sync. Something is out of alignment with God's vision for his church. Whether that something is abusive behavior, backbiting, fiery disagreements, Paul knows that the primary source of all conflict is the same. Pride. And so he begins his admonishment by making himself the example of the attitude he wishes to see conveyed in the church an attitude of meekness and of humility. He writes this in verse three. 
For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, I'm about to give you some instruction. I'm about to give you some direction as it pertains to the life of the church, to the proper functioning of the body. But I am not speaking to you from my apostles' perch. I am not directing you based on my authority over the churches. But I am speaking to you, Paul says, wholly conscious of the grace that God has given to me. Paul is an apostle, which is the highest ranking member of the body of Christ in this world. Paul is an apostle. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says that he magnifies his office. He thinks very highly of the office of apostle. But even though Paul magnifies his office, we see here that Paul does not magnify himself. He is proud of his office as an apostle. But he does not conflate his own personal standing with the elevated standing of the office that he holds. I speak to you not as an authoritative apostle, but I speak to you according to the grace that God has given to me. Paul says to them, I know myself, I know who I am. Beyond the title and beyond the noise, beyond the accolades, I know myself. And Paul knows that in this particular area that he's about to introduce to them, that Paul himself has some growing to do. And just because he's an apostle doesn't mean that he is without flaws. And if you've studied the words of Paul the apostle in all his epistles and his pastoral epistles, there are moments where you can plainly see that even Paul struggled to keep the lid on his own pride. Like that time in the book of Acts chapter 15, verse 38. When Paul rejected Mark the missionary and basically said that Mark was unworthy to travel with him on another missionary journey because Mark didn't measure up. Mark was unworthy to walk with Paul. And he and Barnabas had such a fervent disagreement over this matter that they had to part ways completely. Paul says, no, if Mark is going, I am not going. Mark is unworthy. Why is he unworthy, Paul? Because he didn't stay with us on the last missionary journey. Yeah, but Paul, his character is good. He's a decent young man. He's doing the, no, I don't care about that. He is unworthy, Paul says. Because of Paul's pride and his determination to be right, and his inability to show grace to the young missionary. He may have done the young man harm, he doesn't know. He certainly injured his relationship with Barnabas. So Paul kind of struggles with pride himself. Another good example comes from Galatians chapter two and verse six. When Paul is talking about the other apostles, and this is, this is what he says. From those who were of considerable reputation, 
What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. Well, those who were of reputation, they contributed nothing to me. Huh? Is that right, boy? They contributed nothing to you, really. But Paul, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, you taught us that the entire body of believers is nourished and held together by the joints and ligaments and that we grow with a growth that is from God. And you're saying here that the other apostles added nothing to you? So John and Peter are a part of the same body that you're a part of, but they don't contribute anything to you. You're special then. You're here to tell, but you're not here to be told. You're here to instruct, but you will not submit yourself. Paul struggled. Paul struggled with pride. He was undone in many ways, just as you and I are. And this is why he speaks to them according to the grace that he has received. Grace is a humbling thing. And the person who remains conscious at all times that his successes and all of his accomplishments are merely gifts from God and that he has no room for boasting before God or man, this person will not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. There's nothing wrong with thinking highly of yourself. After all, we're dignified beings. We're made in the very image and the likeness of God. We can appreciate and we should appreciate the fact that each of us is fearfully, wonderfully, and uniquely made. But there has to be a limit as to how well we esteem ourselves. There is a proper way we ought to perceive ourselves and there is an improper way. And Paul states that as we consider our unique gifts, our unique abilities, contributions, and the benefit that we bring to the body, that we should have sound judgment. That we should be reasonable in our assessments of ourselves. That we should be reasonable in how we expect others to treat us or to view us. We should be reasonable in how we view ourselves in comparison to others. Because God has allotted to each a measure, Paul says, of faith. We may not all have the same allotment of faith. One believer may only have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. Another believer may have a measure of faith that grows into the clouds, but that should not color our relationship to one another because whatever the allotment of faith that you have, that faith has been given to you by grace. You did not earn it. You did not work for it. Your great faith has been given to you by the same God who gave the other person less faith. Faith is the primary commodity of heaven among men. Faith is the primary means by which we accomplish anything for God. It is by faith, the Bible says, that we please God. 
It is by faith that we accomplish great things for his kingdom. Faith is powerful. In fact, faith is power. Faith moves mountains. Faith parts waters. Faith stops the rain. Faith shuts the lion's mouth. Faith calls things that are not as though they already were. Faith heals sick bodies. Faith commands peace be still to the storming seas of life. And God has allotted to each of us the measure of faith that we will need to do the work he has ordained us to do. In other words, faith follows function. Faith follows function. It takes more faith to do the work of an apostle than it does to do the work of a prophet. It takes more faith to be an evangelist than it does to be a teacher. But the person who thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think doesn't recognize this. He thinks that the effectiveness of his faith determines his value. And nothing could be further from the truth. While his faith may give him a clue as to his assignment, his faith is not a determining factor of his worth to God. He as a person is worth the same to God as the one who functions as a helper. All of us brothers and sisters have the same value to God no matter how great our faith might be. He sees us all the same. God loves us all the same. So Paul says in verse 4, just as we have many parts in one body, the lungs, the heart, the gallbladder, and all the body's parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. Not only do we not all have the same function, we do not all have the same capacity. The greater a person's faith, the greater the load that she can carry. But just because my capacity is greater than yours does not mean that I am superior to you. This is what Paul is trying to explain. Just because you have a greater capacity than me doesn't mean that you are greater than me. Because the source of our faith, both yours and mine, the source of our faith is the same. And grace is the source of all faith in God. And God gives us faith according to our particular functioning within the body. And the faith God gives is in accordance with the gifts he wants us to exercise in the body and in this world. Faith. Faith can be defined in many ways. In its simplest terms, faith simply means trusting God. But from a practical perspective, faith determines the level of risk a person is able to bear. 
The less faith one has, the less risk that person will be willing to take for God. The more faith, the more risk. Faith is risky business. Faith believes, then faith acts on things that are not so obvious in hope that God will bring that thing to pass. Faith, the Bible says, is the substance of the thing that I'm hoping for even though I cannot see it. Faith is risky business. Faith hopes for what it cannot see. Then by prayer, faith patiently waits for that thing to appear. Now, because faith follows function, or since faith follows gifting, Paul here begins to alert us to the problem that many churches have, certainly that this church at Rome had. And the problem is this. Verse five, we have gifts that differ. That's the challenge. We're different. We have gifts that differ. And if we have gifts that differ, that means we have faith that differs. We're different. We are not different personally, but we have gifts that differ. But when we conflate our giftedness with our personal value, we can become quite hostile to one another. Spiritual giftedness is a great blessing to the body of Christ. When we use them properly, they can heal, they can bless, and they can benefit the body in numerous ways. But when we mistake our spiritual giftedness for our personality, we can do the body unimaginable harm. When I start thinking that my name is Pastor and not Calvin, I can do the body considerable harm. My name is not Pastor. My name is Calvin. My office is Pastor. But when I conflate my office with my personality and I begin to think that my office is myself, then I can begin to highly esteem myself much more highly than I should. We have gifts that differ according to the grace that God has given to us. But each of us, Paul says, must use our gifts properly. What would be the proper use of any spiritual gift then? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 and 12 says that Christ led captivity captive. Christ gave spiritual gifts to all people. Specifically, he says, for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. This is the proper function of every spiritual gift from the greatest gift to the smallest gift to build up one another and thereby to build up the body, to heal and to help, to bless and to comfort. And the improper use of the spiritual gifts of God is to use that gift to beat and to abuse, to oppress and to mishandle God's people for your own personal gain. To employ your spiritual gifting to acquire personal power and influence over the people of God. 
Each of us is gifted, but we're not gifted for ourselves. We are gifted for others. And my spiritual gift, your spiritual gift, is not a reflection of your personal value. But when you view your value by your giftedness, and when you view the value of other people according to what they can contribute to the whole, it becomes very easy for you to dismiss other people, to find them less significant. As I said in the beginning, it's not possible for us to know the specifics of what's going on at the church in Rome. But I think we can surmise from the text that there are at least six uniquely gifted people vying for power within the church. They just can't get along. Each of them feels like their word should be the final word on any matter because of their effectiveness, because of what they feel they bring to the table, because of their unique contributions to the body. And first Paul admonishes the person with the gift of prophecy. And we know it's possible to have the gift of prophecy and not be a prophet. There are people who are gifted to prophesy and to speak, thus saith the Lord, but they're not prophets. They simply have a gift to hear the voice of the Lord, to discern the times, to see into the hearts of men and women from time to time. But that person isn't necessarily a prophet. So Paul says to the person with this gift of prophecy, prophesy in proportion to your faith. In other words, prophesy according to what God has truly shown you, what God has truly said, and do not prophesy according to your own heart. Do not be a false prophet. Do not use your gift in a way that garners you more and more power over God's people. But speak what God has truly spoken to you, and nothing more. Prophesy in proportion to your faith. There are not many things, brothers and sisters, there are not many things that can hurt a church more than a person with a prophetic gift who has a will to power. That's a dangerous combination. Because such a person, consumed with her need for the highest place, will manipulate and coerce and employ her gifting to wreak havoc and confusion in order to secure her place at the head of the table, an improper use of her gifting. Then there is the person who is gifted to serve. Paul instructs this person to immerse themselves in the act of serving. But you know, servants don't have much power. Servants don't have much authority. But servants always seem to know what's going on behind the scenes. The housekeeper in any house can tell you what's on everybody's mind in the house. Servants see a lot. Servants know a lot. The chauffeur hears a lot of intimate and very important conversations as he drives the car. Servants are always and very often put into positions to hear and to see things. If the person with this gift to serve has a will to power, they can use that information in malicious ways, 
in order to gain more power for themselves. But, but, but Paul admonishes this person to remain in his place and not to involve himself in matters beyond his capacity. It reminds me of the story of Martha. You know the story of Martha. She was busy serving. And Mary's just sitting there at Jesus' feet. And Martha has a problem with that. And she asked Jesus to get, make Mary get up and help her do the work. When we tell this story, we often accuse Martha of being jealous of Mary. We accuse Martha of being a workaholic. But that wasn't Martha's problem. Martha's problem was that she wanted to be the administrator when she was only gifted to serve. She did not stay in her lane. Hmm. Then Paul mentions the one who teaches, and he admonishes this person to focus only on your teaching, to limit the scope of your influence only to the art of informing others, the act of teaching. Teachers are not overseers, though every overseer should be a teacher. Not all teachers are overseers. Paul admonishes teachers to remain within the bounds of their function and to function within the capacity of their faith and not to try to function beyond their capacity because this would injure them and this would injure all of those who depend on them for sound instruction. This would harm the body. Paul says in verse eight, or what about the one who exhorts? The one who exhorts is to busy themselves in the work of exhortation. Now, now, to exhort means to encourage, to spur someone on to good works. There are encouragers in every body of believers. Paul says that if your gifting is in the area of exhortation, You are not to use your gift to rebuke or to control others, but only to encourage. That's the gift. Then to the person of means, the one who gives, Paul says, this person should concern himself only with being generous. The one who gives should give with generosity. He should not use his wealth as a means to manipulate or to control the church or its leaders into doing what he wants done. She should not use her money as a tool of influence within the church. That is the proper use of the gift. And the one who is in leadership, Paul says, the one who is in leadership should concern himself with diligence or faithfulness and not be self-seeking of power, not be self-seeking of control or of undue influence. Then finally he says the one who shows mercy let him do it, let her do it with cheerfulness. Not asking or expecting anything in return, but freely sharing what they have with those who are without, cheerfully, not begrudgingly. This is the proper functioning of the gift of mercy. What Paul seems to be saying in these passages is simply this that God has given each of us the faith that we need to function in a limited area of service within the body. And when we each seek only to do what God has called us to do, 
when we keep our place and not covet a space larger than what God has assigned, then the body will work together as a unified organism and we will be an example of what is the good and righteous and the perfect will of God. When we all know our place, when we all keep our place, then God is glorified and the body is nourished. When you read that text, it's easy to overlook the fact that Paul started this thing out talking about being transformed. We always read that text separate from what Paul says just after, but the context is the church body he's talking about. Each of us needs to be transformed to get out of our own heads and stop seeking what is good for ourselves and employ our faith and our gifting for the good of the whole body to keep our place and not to go beyond the boundaries of our authority. Because when pride comes into a church, when pride is running rampant in any body, there's going to be conflict and confusion, distrust and frustration. Paul says, keep your place. And be content with the place that God has put you in. Do not function beyond the level of faith that you have. There's nothing worse than seeing in a church where someone who doesn't have the spiritual gifting is trying to lead and direct the lives of other people. It's one of the most dangerous things I've ever seen. When the person with the gift to serve has taken it upon themselves, I'm going to be your life coach and I'm going to direct, help direct your life. And I'm thinking, you don't even have the capacity for that. You're outside of the realm of your capacity. You're operating outside of the level of faith that you have. So that when this person falls into a ditch, now you don't know what to do for them. You don't know how to help them because you're functioning outside of the realm of your responsibility. Paul is saying each of us needs to know our place in the body and keep our place in the body then the church will function peacefully and everyone can grow. Yeah. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the way that you have made us. Each of us is fearfully and wonderfully and uniquely made. Thank you for the faith that you've given each of us Thank you for the calling to work and service that you've placed upon each of our lives. And Lord God, next week as we begin our study and outreach, as we begin to ponder and reflect upon the spiritual giftings that you've given to each of us individually, I pray, Lord God, that you speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit and show us the place that we have been assigned in the body. And help us to be diligent to perfect that spiritual gift to hold our place, to understand the scope and the limitations of what you've called us to do and to not go beyond. Make us faithful. Make us true. Allow us to be conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to obey you in all things. In Jesus' name.